say Brian? There we go. So, okay, Brian, it's it's good to talk with you again. Um, I understand that you have a question about pity, and that um, it's it's a good idea to get it uh, straightened out uh, from the perspective of what its value is, what its use is. And then we can look at the components of it. Or we can do all of that kind of mixed together. Uh, because um, I think that it has to do with the, uh, the fact that as Buddhism has come to the West, uh, some of the more spectacular things that are associated with Buddhism uh, catches the eye. It's sort of like if it bleeds, it bleeds in uh, the press. Uh, and also, uh, the Western culture has been, let's say, dominated by and uh, strongly influenced by Christianity, even though individual students say, well, I'm not a Christian. Uh, that's like saying, uh, that because that because you're not the same species as fish as the Christians doesn't mean that you don't live in the same ocean that they do. <laughs> and so uh, this is the the point then that the Western mind latches on to a certain few things to try to get a definition of it, and there are uh, some descriptions in the Vasudhimaga that talk about five kinds of uh, responses or reactions uh, to, to pity that have to do with bodily sensations, bodily reactions, and things like this, to where the bodily sensations and the bodily reactions are almost irrelevant. <laughs> They're almost irrelevant. And let me give you an example of that. But first, before I give you the example, we're going to have to define what we mean. If you feel a certain way in the sense of emotions and feelings, that those emotions and feelings will have corresponding bodily reactions to them. <clears throat> An example of that is when the football star at the big game makes a touchdown what does he do immediately, let us say, between the, the actual instant of the touchdown for the first 30 seconds? He might spike the ball and uh, go hugging his teammates. Okay. All of that, then, is the physical manifestation of what he's feeling on the inside. Now describe to me what he's feeling on the inside. Um, he's pretty filled with himself, I think. Uh, okay. But as a feeling, I don't know how please. to describe. Yeah, please. Pleasure. Okay. Anything else? Um, how about the feeling of success? The feeling of on top of the world. The yeah. Feeling like I can do this. 
often has expressions like yeehaw or yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay or something like this that has the also a physical manifestation but that it indicates a feeling or an emotion mm-hmm. right and that the whole point of him going into football is to make those touchdowns and the whole point about making those touchdowns is because of how the guy feels when he's making the touchdown is that right that he feel if he felt if he was so good at touchdowns he would feel ho-hum and blah about it (laughs) then he wouldn't continue making those touchdowns and you see sports people like that at the top of their game they will change games Hmm. Why? Because the thrill is gone because they've gotten too good at, at a particular game and the too good means that they're not getting the joy or the pleasure out of doing it anymore. Hmm. All right. Gotta go get good at something else then. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So let's look then at pity in relationship to Sukha. Because Pity and Sukha work together. Uh, one could say then that uh, that Sukha is a an outcome or response or part of the effect. And the cause of that is gladdening the mind or having very wholesome thoughts. Very wholesome thoughts by themselves gives one pleasure. Mm. especially in the sense of getting rid of old unhappy thoughts that were not giving pleasure. Okay. So just as um, Sukha is related to the gladdening of the mind and one's right effort, um, that pity is the natural outcome of one's right attitude. And the attitude in the case that we just gave as the example was the attitude of a winner, the attitude, I can do this, the attitude of yippee-ki-yo-ki-yay. And not only does the, the football players play the football in order to get that exhilaration and that feeling of having won, Look at what happens with the fans also. What do the fans do who are backing that particular team when they make a touchdown? Do the fans also stand up, start yelling and cheering, and many of them will throw their arms in the air, and this is also the sign that that we put out for the football players, that many of them have their arms in the air. When someone, um, let us say, runs the 100-yard dash in the uh, Olympics and wins the gold medal. That's what they do. Our arms go up. Our chest opens. We, we, we take on the stance of being successful. You don't see somebody when they make a touchdown at, um, uh, at the big game go into the fetal position and, and crawl into a ball there next to the goal. If it's there in their own goal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, 
when we're looking at pity and sukha, um, unfortunately, the mind is looking for descriptions and we hear these physical descriptions. And then we think that the physical descriptions are the pity. Um, it's, it's like uh, drawing a map for someone. And then they cling to that piece of paper, the map, as if the map is the territory. The, um, the feelings, uh, or let us say the behavior or the sensations of the body associated with pity is very much like that. They're just merely associated with it, but they are not the pity. Mm. Okay. Now, some of them are uh, listed as hair standing on end. The hair stands up when we get excited. Also, hair stands up when we're fearful. Um, that uh, There is an old story from New York out of the 1930s that has to do with it's well known that a, um, a robber who had a knife or a pistol would follow somebody on the streets of New York for a short distance just to check to see if that person knew that the uh, the robber was behind him. And and they will normally do that because they can look at the back of the hair of the head. And if the hair of the head is standing up. In other words, the neck tensions are there. If we get tight in the neck, the hair will stand up. And that's a sure sign then that that guy is to be avoided. He is not to be robbed. <laughs> because even if he's not consciously aware of danger, he's at least subconsciously aware of the danger. And he'll be more prepared than someone who is completely oblivious. Okay. All right. But even though the robber did not do that robbery because he could see the hair on the neck of his victim stand up, did not mean that he stopped the robbery because of the hair of the neck standing up, it's because of what the hair on the neck represented. Sure, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so this is where we are going with the concept of pity, is, is that these uh, bodily functions, these sensations, um, the feeling of having a wave of washing over you and this kind of stuff is um, the, the physical response of the emotions that are brought up in first jhana. Okay, so the first important thing, <laughs> and I don't know how important uh, to put this because uh, without this first step, there is no progress. And yet this first step that I'm mentioning is almost always left out of every meditation instruction. Mm. For instance, the Mahasi method talks about noting. Others talk about choiceless awareness. Others talk about mindfulness-based stress reduction and other things like this. And they're all missing the key ingredient that the Buddha always starts out with. 
for some reason it's it's got to do with the way that we were trained as children that what we're doing now is only a preparation for something to come. Only this and then that, which means that this is a preparation for what's to come. This is not important. That which is to come becomes important. And because we uh, think about that, we kind of miss out on things. An example that they have come to understand like that is, is that uh, they, uh, in our uh, Western society, they start kids in first grade, right? And every, every child starts first grade. That's just how it goes. That's the beginning of it, right? Now they have, with a lot of research over the years, they found out that a lot of kids are not ready for first grade. They didn't have <laughs> what was really needed that wasn't even on the list of things that were needed. And so this is the point that I'm making about the freedom from the hindrances is the very first thing that we have to practice. There is not going to be any sukha. There's not going to be any pity. There's not going to be any first jhana if there are hindrances in the mind. Mm -hmm. And what are the hindrances are anything that will prevent you from going into first jhana? Anything that will prevent you from going into first jhana is a hindrance to you going into first jhana. But we have some classifications for that. <laughs> and there's also some analogies. The, the first classification that we can look at actually is the starting off of the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is wanting things that we don't have. So a hindrance of the mind would be thoughts of wanting something, anything. Especially if we're, let us say, secluded, then any thoughts that we have about anything, more than likely what it is that we're thinking about is not right there immediately available. <laughs> okay, so we have to understand there's a distinction between wanting something and then getting it immediately which would be, let us say, hunger and happiness. That some hungers we can um, eliminate immediately and become happy immediately. An example of that would be right here. I've got a cup of coffee. I want a sip of coffee. I take a sip of coffee. <laughs> Done deal. Now, if I'm sitting in a meditation hall with a whole bunch of other people with the men on one side and the women on the other, and I happen to see uh, on the other side over there, someone who has a kneecap exposed. And then I get interested in that kneecap and I want that kneecap. Well, there's no way in that meditation hall I'm going to get that kneecap. <laughs> that would be scandalous. But that would be a scandal, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. But we want that kneecap and associates. <laughs> but. We don't get what we want, and so that is as a state of uh, dukkha, wanting something that we don't have, which means that any time that we have any thoughts of wanting something that we don't have, we actually feel incomplete with that. If I want it and need it, 
that means that I'll be better with it. Which means now without it, I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. Right? That that's where it is, right there. I'm not good enough because I want something I don't have. I'm longing for it. That's a hindrance of a mind of the mind. The next one is actually wanting to get rid of something that we have to put up with. Let's suppose in the meditation hall or somebody occasionally coughs. And half the crowd just don't like that. <laughs> Why? Because it disturbs their meditation, so they say. Who's disturbing their meditation? They are. Or the one who doesn't like the cough. The one who doesn't like it, yeah. Right. That's the hindrance, is not liking the cough. So another one would be um, in the order that they're normally given, sloth and torpor is the. <laughs> I laugh every time I hear those words. <laughs> Because they are not even 19th century words. These are 18th and 17th century words, but somebody pulled them out of the garbage and put it into Buddhism. We've got better words that we use nowadays. We use words like, um, well, torpor is easy. That's just sleepiness or tiredness. Sloth is a little bit more complicated mm. because it already has an attitude built into it, and the attitude has to do with doubt in the sense of I can't meditate now, or what's the point, or I've got too much on my mind, or that kind of uh, perspective, <clears throat> that we can also just call it laziness. but. What I'm actually pointing at at this point is, is that these hindrances are interrelated. That if we have doubts about how to practice, then that will prevent us from practicing because it gives us the attitude of why bother? Or what's the point? Um, another one which is um, uh, quite powerful is restlessness. Now, what restlessness is um, that we can understand it easily for our practice in the beginning is what we call monkey mind. Which means that the mind just moves from object to object to object to object. But basically, uh, the question would be if a real monkey were jumping from tree limb to tree limb to tree limb like that, why would the monkey be jumping from tree limb to tree limb to tree? Other than the fact that when he gets to the next new tree limb, it too is unsatisfactory, unsatisfying, and so he moves on. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. In fact, uh, uh, Buddha gave a story about a dog. Uh, not like most dogs. Most dogs, they they can lay down. They just rest all day, got nothing to do. In fact, I got two of them under me right now. And yet in this story about this dog, the dog would lay down, then he would scratch or bite a bit, and then he would get up and circle around the uh, the resting place that he had, 
maybe dick a little bit. So he kind of digs down and then he lays back down in the hole, stays there for about 10 seconds, and then gets up and run and starts pacing around and around the hole again, and then lays down again, perhaps exactly in the same posture that he did the first time. Okay. And the Buddha is saying that this is like the human mind. This is that restless mind that cannot find settled. In other words, maybe the dog had mange or something like that and was not comfortable. But the point is, is that the dog kept moving and moving and moving and could not rest for longer than about 10 seconds. This is how our own mind is. There's a deeper kind of restlessness that actually is the source then of anxiety that comes up. And underneath all of this stuff is the feeling of fear. Mm. And so fear, restlessness, uh, doubt, worry, agitation, um, wanting things that we don't have or trying to put up with stuff, or just being in the wrong frame of mind for uh, the practice of meditation. All of these are the hindrances. There are also in Sutta number 39, five analogies for being free from the hindrances. And this is really important stuff. If you can understand this and you can really begin to see the value of the removal of the hindrances. Okay. so. Um, also, these five analogies don't correspond to one hindrance is one analogy, the second hindrance is the second analogy, the third hindrance is the third analogy, but rather all five analogies kind of fit in with two or three or more of the um, uh, of the hindrances. And so the first one that we're going to look at is that you're sick, really sick sick to the point of being admitted into the hospital. And then they do their uh, IVs, they do their thing. And um, the next day or so, you're feeling better. And you want out of the hospital, <laughs> right? That we're not sick now. And so the analogy is, is that when, you, when you're sick, you feel low. But when you feel better, you're ready to go. This is how we want to look at the hindrances, that when we have hindrances in the mind, it's kind of an illness. We're sick. And when we're free from those hindrances, we're ready to go. Another analogy is uh, prison. That when we are in hindrances, it's very much like that the mind is locked up and has no freedom. And so we are uh, bound to do what we are ordered to do by the prison guards. And so um, being free from hindrances is like being out of prison. Another one is uh, being in service. Now, one of the examples would be being in service to the king so that you got to get up before the king wakes up. You got to get his dress all ready. You got to make sure that the cook is break, making breakfast and is ready to serve that. And you go around following the king all day, ministering to the king, giving him everything that he wants. You finally put him, in, him to bed at night, and then the servant can go back to his servant quarters and rest. 
I think I'd rather be in the prison. Pardon? I said, I think I'd rather be in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> They're very similar now, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are very similar when we begin to think of them like that. And the hindrances is that being in service to the king and being in the king's prison is about the same. No freedom. And um, this this one of the servant, we can think of that, in fact, as uh, the workaday world that we have in today. You plan your whole day around going to work. You set your alarm to get up in the morning so that you can go to work. And then uh, all of your wardrobe and your transportation needs and many, many items throughout your life have to do with being employed. <laughs> so in a way, it's its own prison. And you have to wear the prison uniform and eat the prison food <laughs> and and wake up on the prison schedule, except that here, the prison is the palace. All right. So these things begin to fit together so that there's another one that we can look at because this is actually very interesting and that is being in debt mm. that you owe money to someone most of the reasons why people uh, have to work at, at a job is because they're in debt and they have to pay off the job but wouldn't it be marvelous i mean we we see that it's on a regular basis uh it's done by let us say a somewhat elderly couple when they'll have a mortgage burning party because they feel so relieved to have paid off that mortgage now they don't owe any money i think that same way as with student debt in the u.s is to get mm -hmm. those debts paid off what a relief to be out of debt um that in fact young Men and women who go into the practice of the Dhamma uh, at a young age, they begin to reflect upon this so that throughout the rest of their lives, if they have no other real value from the Buddha Dhamma other than this one point, they will generally be reluctant to go into debt because mm. they can see finally through the Dhamma how powerfully um, destructive being in debt is because it runs our whole life. Yeah, it's not a prison. And it's like a prison. So the last analogy of the five is the analogy of being on a long journey with lots and lots of baggage. Let's say, uh, in fact, the original was uh, uh, a caravan and the the the, uh, the guy who owned the caravan had camels and they were all laden down with all the goods that he had had. And he's got across the desert and there's thieves and there's dangers and all kinds of things. And finally, he makes it to, um, let us say, to a resort or to his home. And now he can relax. He made it with all of his goods. Okay. So each one of these five stories have to do with kind of a before and the after. Like before he was out on the trail with all of his baggage, trying to make sure that everything was going right and, and all. But when he gets home, he probably will, uh, like in modern times, <clears throat> 
people, when they get home from a long journey, the first thing they do is set their bags down and sit down. They don't unpack. Oh, no. Nobody unpacks the first thing they do when they get home. Yeah. In fact, they don't even want to see those bags anymore. They've been <laughs> too much trouble. <clears throat> We've had to watch over them. That's one of the reasons why people uh, travel in groups is because sometimes you need two of you when you're out traveling. One to guard the bags and the other one to go to the counter to get the tickets would be one example. And so dealing with baggage on a journey is the way that we kind of live our whole lives. We carry all this baggage with us, jungling it around, when in fact we just sit it all down. This is where we're coming to with the idea of the hindrances. And when you recognize what a relief it is to put down these hindrances. <laughs> That's why this is the import, first important job. No matter what your object of meditation is, the important point, number one point, is to free the mind from the hindrances. And that we can use the object of meditation to help us to do that if we're practicing correctly. When we're not practicing correctly, then we think the object of the uh, meditation is the important thing. <laughs> so like in Mahasi, noting, and they will say to note what's there. Well, what's there is a pile of crap. <laughs> Why do I have to keep noticing this pile of crap? Wouldn't it be better off if I noticed this pile of crap as a pile of crap and threw it out? And now what I can notice will be something useful, valuable, and wholesome and worth noting. Why should I have to continue to note the crap? The answer to that is because in the Mahasi method, not Mahasi himself, but the Mahasi method that's made it to the West, misses this important point. Okay. There is a sutta number 111. It's called One by One as They Occur. And that uh, the sutta is basically a sutta of the Buddha praising Sariputta. Hmm. And he starts off by saying that Sariputta uh, has wisdom. He's got sharp wisdom. He's got expansive wisdom. And he has laughing wisdom. I like that one, the laughing wisdom. <laughs> and then he said that, uh, the Buddha said that, and Sariputta got to this by practicing in the following way. And that it only took him two weeks a fortnight. For a fortnight, he practiced. Now, Sariputta had already been on the spiritual journey. More than likely, he was uh, kind of a year or two behind the Buddha, who had mm -hmm. already been out there practicing all these jhanas and all of this, that, and the other thing, and came away dissatisfied with them. So these skills... Um, Sariputta may have already gotten. In other words, he didn't start this two-week period dead raw, but rather he brought skills with him to that, but he started practicing correctly. Because the issue is not getting into first jhana. The issue is what are we going to do with it? 
once we get into first jhana and this is the part that people miss because normally the western mind will say to the answer to that question well what are you going to do with first jhana once you get into it the answer is second jhana <laughs> and what do you want to do with second jhana when you get into that third jhana and what are you going to do with the third jhana after you give it that fourth jhana you see how this is going okay how many well, numbers grade school right it's only natural <laughs> uh-huh exactly this is the way but understanding that the teachings of the buddha is really no this first jhana is a very very major deal for the simple reason that the first jhana is the student's position of actually being free from hindrances and having his mind for finally fit for work so what are we going to do with a mind that's fit for work going to put it to work but we got to be ready to go to work and so this is where the other jhana factors come in first off with anapanasati the breathing is very important in the sutta it specifically states it in a way that we mindfully breathe in long which means that at, a, at some point in that in-breath, we are going to remember and note that this is a long breath that we're taking, or that actually we're not just uh, noting that this is a long breath, we're intending for it to be a long breath. We're actually making the change, making a change. That's an important point. A lot of people think that meditation is a passive activity. But this is not. This is an active meditation. Mm -hmm. People do not go to the gym, do some chanting, burning some incense, and then stand there and watch the uh, barbells. That would be an interesting gym. <laughs> right? Nobody gets any benefit out of barbells by just mentally noting them and watching them, spending a whole hour in the gym just examining the equipment that's how many people try to do meditation they don't <laughs> recognize that there's going to be some uh effort in there there's got to be some um as it were heavy lifting and the first one is going to be to make sure that the body is breathing correctly which means breathing long and relaxed now, I've had one student say at one time that when he's breathing long and relaxed after a short period of time, uh, his body gets tired of the long, relaxed breathing. And I can see that, yeah, that's actually possible. If somebody has not been paying any attention to the breathing at all, then the automatic pilot kind of breathing that's done through the reptilian brain in the back is going to be doing it the same way that a first grader will do his homework when nobody's around. <laughs> Not much of it. Uh, so, uh, we have to actually put in the right effort. That this is, this is where the Eightfold Noble Path comes into play. When we call it a path, I, I really mean a method. Because the path looks like that it takes a long time to walk down the path. 
but this is more like a method of like how to open a box. Well, you put the key in, you turn the crank, and the box lids open. It takes about five or ten seconds. That's all it takes. And so the Eightfold Noble Path is not something that you have to tread for 50 years before you finally get any benefit out of it. It's much more like, no, this is a method of turning the crank and opening the door. That's all there is to it. This is the Eightfold Noble Method. And that, in fact, um, we can actually focus on some of them in, uh, in particular because some of the aspects of the path are more resultant than they are causal. And this is one of the places where most people get it backwards, but uh, the backwardness of uh, cause and effect in the sense that they think that uh, sila or morality is a really big whoop to do on the April Noble Path. Right view, right, uh, excuse me, not right view, right action, right speech, and right livelihood are, are really big in some Buddhist quarters. But really, the Buddha would say that, no, we're really, we're talking about seclusion. When, when you were away from everybody, when you're sitting on your own, your sila at that point is perfect. How can you be possibly be breaking sila about killing someone when there's nobody around to kill? Unless mentally. You know. <laughs> Well, that's the whole point then is, is that we recognize that there are there is a mental world and a physical world, but Siva is normally that we clean up the physical world and we behave ourselves. And then that behavior, that new behavior, putting ourselves into that kind of prison or box will then help the mind to settle down. This is the ordinary way of thinking. But the noble way of thinking is, is that the mind, when it is sharp and focused and noble and doesn't want anything, then the outcome of that will be perfect sila. So there's sila for the kids. You behave yourself or I'm going to beat your ass. And then there is the sila of the nobles of, hey, man, I got nothing. So let's go back to the Eightfold Noble Path about the parts that are really valuable and, and important. The first one is right view. If we have wrong view, then we will automatically have wrong thoughts. So we have to take the effort to change our view about things. Mm -hmm. And that means that it's a skill to be developed. And basically, the skill that is to be developed with one's right view is a skill that is developed through investigation. And the more we investigate, the better we get at it. You probably know the story about uh, Dr. Watson and uh, Sherlock Holmes, right? And part of uh, Doyle's whole big business of it was is that um, uh, Dr. Watson was completely impressed with Sherlock Holmes' ability to investigate. But in nowhere in the novel that I know of, where it actually points out that Dr. Holmes or Dr. Watson is going through uh, his own investigations, he's just seeing. Sherlock Holmes do the investigation, but as Sherlock Holmes does more and more investigations, he gets sharper and sharper and sharper at it. 
This is exactly what happens with our uh, with the uh, Anapanasati also, is that we begin to develop our uh, skills of seeing what's there correctly. We begin to notice that what we thought was wholesome at one time, now we begin to see the dangers in it. But in fact, the ordinary mind is always looking at it from the perspective of what gratification do I get out of this? We go to town, we go to shopping, we go do all our things uh, throughout the day, even have arguments with each other because there is some gratification. I can prove I'm right or whatever. And so we live our lives normally going from one gratification to another gratification, and we wonder why things are so painful in getting those gratifications. And the answer to that is because we don't see the dangers. Once we see the gratification, we'll do it until we see the danger. And then once we see the danger, now we begin to make a cost-benefit analysis and once we see that all oh, the danger is greater than the gratification, now we'll find a way of getting rid of this. We can find our escape. So the Buddha talks about it, the gratification, the dangers, and the escape. And this is one's right view as it develops okay. through investigation. That we can see things that we thought used to be wholesome, now they're not wholesome, and we can see that they're not wholesome. Or that we can see at one time we thought, oh, this is not hindrance at all to my first jhana. And then we recognize later, oh, yes, it is a hindrance. And when I stop doing that, then I am no longer um, fettered or bound. So one's right view is the important point. But we can only have right view or do an investigation when we remember to do it. That's why sati is so important. And so we want to develop sati. So sati is actually the skill that we're going to intend to develop. We're going to practice sati. We're going to practice it with an in-breath, long in-breath. We're going to practice it with an out-breath, a long breath. And we're going to uh, continue to remember, to remember, to look. <laughs> to remember, to remember, to look. That would be the sati. And then comes in right effort. And right effort is so powerful, it's so important because in normal meditation practice, <clears throat> even when people can see the hindrances, they don't see it well enough and then take the effort that it takes to throw it out. So in what I'm saying now, and the Buddha points this out, is, is that right view and right sati and right effort run and circle around each other. Okay, they're kind of a loop of samsara all on their own, but this is a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Okay, because one's uh, improving right effort will improve one's right view. One's right view will improve one's right sati, and one's right sati will improve both right effort and right view. And they run and circle around each other that way. This is an important point when we recognize that one's right effort then is to remove these hindrances and then what's going to be left well let's look at it this way if we have dissatisfaction in the mind and that is removed what is then left 
Give me a little satisfaction. Satisfaction. Precisely. Exactly. <laughs> this is where the removal of the hindrances is the causal, causal factor. But it's also a causal factor in the sense that not only have we removed the hindrances in the sense of removing unwholesome thoughts, we're also putting wholesome thoughts in. And so working with these wholesome thoughts, the kind of wholesome thoughts then that we would have would be those kind of wholesome thoughts that will directly take us right into sukha and then into pity. All right. So thoughts of this is nice. Thoughts of no place to go and nothing to do and everything is all right and wow, everything is so good. These are the kind of thoughts that we have that bring on the feeling of security and safety. We can also have thoughts about everything is safe here. There's no gorillas. There's no crocodiles. There's no barking dogs. Everything is just easy going right now. Right? So everything is safe. Everything is secure. Everything is comfortable. Got all we need right now in this moment. And so these are the kind of wholesome thoughts that we would have. And now it comes into play very much like uh, I've said before, I think you've heard, that we have spent our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad, wanting this, wanting that, trying to fix this, getting out of that trouble, all kinds of things. We have been talking ourselves into feeling bad our whole lifetime. Now it's time to talk ourselves into feeling good. So in this regard, we have worked now with um, the breath and the body, learning to control the breath, making it a long, deep in-breath and a long, deep out-breath. We're also controlling the mind. The controlling of the mind is by controlling the breath. You can't control the breath if you can't control the mind to control the breath. That's like saying that you're uh, behind the steering wheel of the car. If the steering wheel is detached from the car and you're just holding the steering wheel, you've seen old jokes and movies like that. Here's the steering wheel. <laughs> Who's steering the car? <laughs> All right. So we have to put this together and to recognize that the mind controls the, uh, the body. And by controlling the mind and controlling the body, and also by controlling the mind to put these wholesome thoughts in there, we're now beginning to control our feelings. That you, in fact, can feel the way that you want to feel. You've always felt the way that you wanted to feel. You just <laughs> had the idea that it was okay to feel bad. If I feel bad enough, I can get what I want. Or you That's don't have the sati to choose a different mindset usually exactly so so now we're really looking at how we develop this sukha to get ourselves into this state where everything is okay everything is fine and to now we're going to add the fourth ingredient of the eightfold noble path the Pali word for that is tamas and kappa and it is often translated as right intention it's also translated as right thought, but that's got, a, it's got some problems with that one. And then the, uh, the one that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa uses that I use the most is right attitude. 
if you've got if you've got a particular attitude, guess what? The thoughts that you were going to have and your attentions are going to be associated with that particular attitude. Okay, so if my attitude is um, being against a particular th politician, then all of my thoughts are going to be against that politician. In this regard, then we begin to see that all oh, when we start controlling our thoughts, we also begin to control our attitude and the attitude itself then becomes to control our thoughts. So this is the Sama Sankapa and as our Sukha grows, so does our confidence that I can do this. I can do this. I can get my mind cleaned out. I can finish the hindrances off. I can take a deep breath and relax. May not be for a long time, but that's a skill to be developed. And getting into that state is also a skill to be developed. So we begin to gain confidence that we can do this. And this is the budding of the right um, noble uh, attitude or Sama Sankapa. When that really develops, it develops into a, a, um, a winner's attitude, a champion's attitude, an attitude can do. It's now we walk around with the mentality of just a second or two ago, I just made a Heise Trophy winning touchdown. <laughs> Okay, we walk around like I just did it. Well, what is it that we just did? Actually, what we just did was something that very few people are capable of doing. We've had thousands of people win gold medals. We've had thousands of football players make touchdowns, and they all feel really, really great. But few of them can climb, uh, let us say, Mount Everest. Those who climb Mount Everest, they get a great deal of satisfaction by being on top of the mountain once they get there. But look how much work it was. <laughs> and it's very dangerous. And now that they're up there, now they got to get off the place. You got to get down. But very few people are capable of going to the top of the world uh, in the sense of a real mountain. Even fewer people go to the top of the world, climb the highest mountain of all, the mountain of the human mind. And you're doing that right now. Congratulations. <laughs> okay, and I'm talking about congratulations the way that, uh, that one would get a gold medal kind of congratulations with a whole stadium full of people cheering and Full of pity and rapture and joy and all of that kind of stuff. So this is how you need to start looking at your life, that you are a champion. You're capable of doing something that almost no one else in the world is capable of doing. And that is controlling your own mind and controlling the way you feel. This is what's so marvelous then. And we want to gain um, a quality of that marvel about how marvelous this is, what a spectacular achievement this is to actually achieve nothing at all. <laughs> this now is where we're looking at the pity. The pity comes in, in the sense of, and you know how we're talking about, because the Heisman Trophy winner, the guy just thinking about it, 
and it gets all exhilarated inside. I mean, I can feel the, the, the tingling come right up. They call it Kundalini and all of that kind of stuff. This stuff is very real. It's sensations of the body, but it is not only the sensations of the body. That pity is not the sensations of the body. Pity is the attitude that we have that gives us those sensations of the body. Mm. What is that attitude? The attitude of, I've got this one. Got it. Can do. Confidence. The Pali word for it is sada, and the Sanskrit word is shraddha. And is often translated as the word faith. And this has got absolutely nothing to do with faith. Because faith has no evidence at all. And we're building evidence. We're building a case here. We've got really <laughs> strong, solid evidence that we know that we could do this. Okay. That confidence actually, um, in a way, Brian, is transmitted as part of the lineage. In other words, if you are around a teacher who has this can-do attitude and gives you the enthusiasm and the exuberance, then you can pick that up. Part of the job of these um, video calls is to transmit that uh, confidence, to transmit that spark that you can do this. My joy can be your joy. It's just joy. <laughs> he can do it. You can do it. There's enough to go around. Yes. It's a win-win attitude. It's a, uh, how to say it, um, it's not a zero-sum game. Money is a zero-sum game. If I give you $5, I lose $5. If I give you $5 of joy, now we've got $10 of joy. <laughs> And so it's a, not a zero sum. Uh, the same thing is like a spark or a match. That a match can light a whole lot of fire. But if a match was a zero sum game, then the only thing it could do would be to start another match of fire and then it's got to go out. And so fire, knowledge, love, wisdom, all of those kinds of things are, zero, are not zero-sum games because they will grow by spreading it. Yeah. <laughs> and so this is why we, we teach the way, is to give you the confidence that you can do this. And with that confidence built upon the fact that you've already been building up uh, safety, security, contentment, relaxation, and um, satisfaction, we pile on top of that a great big helping of success and confidence. And that's where the pity comes in. And so that we know that we can do this. And this then is that first jhana that is full of confidence, it's full of joy, it is full of exuberance. And it has been, uh, let us say, cleaned of all of the negativity. So that now the next thing that has to be done with the first jhana 
because there's a reason for it. And that is, is that we're now going to use the first jhana as a platform for observation so that now we're going to start paying attention to what's really there. Mm. But what's really there is really real, and it is also really wholesome. Because it's been eliminated of all the unwholesome stuff. And so there's right. a number of things that we can do with first jhana that have to do with wholesome. An example of that, and next time that we talk, we'll go into greater detail, but we can give you some classifications of what that would be like now in the sense of various aspects of the Dhamma would be very wholesome. Therefore, inspecting uh, the Eightfold Noble Path or inspecting the Four Noble Truths, one of the ways of doing that would be like the Third Noble Truth. Wow, right now, this is Third Noble Truth. I really like this. So we're investigating it. We're actually picking it out and saying, yes, this is it. This is a state free from suffering. Another one that we would do would be like looking at the Eightfold Noble Path in the sense of how's my investigation? How is my sati? How is my effort? How is my attitude? And so we begin to work on them that way and, and do that, but we're now we're doing it from a completely wholesome place. We mm. also can look at the five aggregates. Where am I in there? We can also do it with the Sambo Jhana in the sense of uh, unremitting mindfulness. The mindfulness and more mindfulness and more mindfulness and more mindfulness and then investigation and more investigation and more investigation. In this regard, when that happens, then we, the question of how is our effort, actually now it almost becomes energetic. That it pops up. As soon as we think about uh, taking a deep breath, the mind will empty and that breath will come. In the beginning, for the, uh, for the beginning student, it's an effort to take. But after we practice that effort, it gets easy, very easy, almost to the point of being automatic or spring-loaded. <laughs> so all you have to do is push that sati button, and Anapanasati just jumps out of the box like jack-in-the-box. <laughs> the whole show just pops right up because we've got right effort. And also the relaxation. How do we feel? Do we feel really relaxed? This actually... Uh, in the translation, they use um, high pollutant words like tranquility or tranquilize. But that, when I hear the word tranquilize, I think of a lion laying on its side with a dart in its neck. <laughs> and it's completely out of it. So yeah. we don't need to use those kind of language. That's too way up there. We can just use the word relax. That's what we're really looking for. Because I don't think you want to be tranquilized. Probably not. Like, but you do like being really relaxed. Yeah, I can get behind that. Okay, so this is how we look at these these factors of the uh, of jhana. That in fact, in some suttas, uh, relaxation is mentioned as a jhana factor. Hmm. And you can see that well, the relaxation uh, that would be a jhana factor, the relaxation of the body actually comes about through the combination of the Anapanasati and the Sukha and the Pitti, so that the body itself even relaxes. 
And so this is the way that we practice is, is that we have the relaxed body. we got the relaxed mind. Everything is there, but now the mind is sharp and fit for work. And so uh, that sharp and fit for work means that we have actually two skills developed in, in a broad sense, rather than the small skills of sati and right, in, uh, right view and right effort and uh, right attitude. Basically, we can say that those things together, when they become um, skills, then that gives a new overall skill. And that new overall skill can be called getting into jhana quickly. So that a good dhana dude, as soon as he thinks about it, he's in first jhana, just pops right in. <laughs> And then the second skill is the second skill is to maintain this state, which is exactly what is meant by applied and sustained thought. Can you continue to sustain thoughts that are wholesome? That's basically all that means is to sustain the mind into the wholesome. And as long as we keep the mind wholesome, gladdened, sharp, and investigating, we can maintain this state. But if we don't, then the hindrance is going to pop in and mess the whole show. And I'm talking about it like uh, an example of that. I remember one time uh, when I was working for IBM and we all went to the same restaurant over and over again. Uh, and one time I ordered a salad. And uh, uncovering the salad and there was a dead fly in the salad. <laughs> And I pointed it to my friend and said, well, send it back. Okay, it's got a dead fly. The whole salad is this big. I've got a huge amount of salad. I could eat, easily eat around that fly or pick it up and take it out. But no, we want to send the whole salad back because it's been ruined. All right? What does that mean? That means the same thing with our first jhana can't get ruined with that first fly that comes in there. <laughs> We can pull, we can pull, we can fall right out of jhana with that one thought. So we have to be on vigil to make sure that every thought that comes up is intentionally wholesome. And by doing that, that means that the only thing that we have to really investigate are wholesome things. Just kind of enjoying the whole experience. And just enjoying the whole show, right? This is quite a show going on. <laughs> just enjoy the show. I think I'm still working up to all this stuff. I'm not quite there yet, but it's good to get a preview of everything. Well, let's go practice. And then we'll talk about later about what's worth doing when we're in first jhana. We've already got a kind of an, um, uh, an indication. That yeah, there's only the only thing once we get into a really wholesome state, the only thing to look at, the only thing to note are wholesome things. In that regard, where is dark night of the soul going to come from? Where is misery and disgust and despair? We've already left all of that behind. We said, out. Get out, hindrance. <laughs> and so once we have the first John or the second, the third, or whatever, there is no more room for dark night of the soul. Mm. 
the dark night of the soul happens to those students who have not removed the hindrances from the mind. They do the noting anyway. They get a very, very sharp, clear mind. They're working very hard and they get excellent at seeing dukkha because that's what they're looking at. <laughs> and and but but that does not bring them joy, does not bring them jhana, does not bring them pity, rapture, uh, sukha, all of that kind of stuff. What it brings them instead is fear, misery, disgust, and a great desire, a hindrance, to get out of this stuff. And then finally, the strong determination, I've got to make a change. Well, people go sometimes 20, 30 years before they get to that point. Sometimes we'll have multiple dark night of the souls. Like every two or three years, I'll have another pity party, a big one. <laughs> Why is that? Because they never work with the idea of getting rid of the hindrances right from the very beginning. That's the number one goal. The number, the first thing that we have to do is to remember to change the mind. To come out of unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. So you start remembering to do that over and over and over again. This is good. This is fine. No work to do. No problems. No worries, folks. Everything is good. These are the thoughts that we have to develop. Now, whatever wholesome thoughts for you that you want are, I mean, I'm just giving those that I know work for me, but for you, you can find other things, but pretty well, you know, no place to go and nothing to do that helps. And the grass will grow by itself. That's very helpful. Very wholesome yeah. thoughts. And so this is the way that you uh, want to practice. And this does not have to do with sitting on the floor with candles and incense and all of that. This is all throughout the day, any time that you can remember, that's the sati, to remember, to take a deep breath and to tell yourself, well, man, everything's okay, no problems. And so you can come in and out of first jhana throughout the day. <laughs> I wish. I'll work on it. Okay. We've got to get into the first time, I think. Well, it's not something to be worked on. That's a hindrance. It's something to be played with. Right. This is that's a toy. A yeah, all we're getting is just a bunch of new toys to play with. Tied to be a kid again, doing what we did again. <laughs> just enjoy life. Every child has the ability to enjoy life. Why is it when they get adults, they don't know how to do it anymore? So many things to do in the future and not right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So many things to hinder us from our joy. Catch them one at a time and throw them out. Whack-a-mole. <laughs> Whack-a-mole. That's a good one. Right. Whack that thing. All right, Brian. Well, let's finish up now. And you okay. continue your practice the way that we're talking about. Sounds good. All right. And we'll talk about what to do with it next time. All right. Thank you very much. You have a good one. Yes, you have a good moment. <laughs> right, bloody now. <laughs> Will do. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.